Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. Welcome to Florida Matters. I'm Bradley George. It's an idea straight out of science fiction, predicting crime before it happens. Remember the Tom Cruise movie, Minority Report? Well, about a decade ago, Pasco County Sheriff Chris Nocco adopted something called predictive policing. The idea is to use data to stop potential offenders before they commit crimes. Deputies pay frequent visits to the homes of residents who are deemed prolific offenders. Many included on the list were children. After a Tampa Bay Times investigation highlighted harassment allegations, criticism ensued. Now a federal investigation is underway over the program's use of data from the county school system, and several parents are suing the sheriff's department. But there have been seemingly few changes to the program. Last month, the Times investigation team that included Kathleen McGrory won the Pulitzer Prize for local reporting. I spoke to her about her series of stories and the problems her team uncovered. So, Kat, starting off, let's go back about 10 years ago, 2011. Chris Nocco becomes Pasco County Sheriff, and he has this idea about intelligent policing. What what was he thinking? What was the problem that he was trying to solve with with intelligent policing? Yeah. um, So in in 2011, Chris Nocco was the, the newly minted sheriff up in Pasco County, And from what we've been able to report, you know, it seems like he was looking to kind of revolutionize the department to to find the most, you know, up to date methods of policing and bring them to this agency. And one of the things he started looking at is what's known as intelligence led policing. Um, Intelligence led policing is kind of hard to define because there are a lot of departments that are using it, but they're using different strategies and different pieces of it. There's not necessarily a universal uh, definition of what what intelligence-led policing is. But what they started to do in Pasco County was to try to use data to drive decisions. So they started looking, for example, at what different neighborhoods, you know, what the crime trends were, and, and then trying to use that data to figure out where to best deploy deputies. So this is kind of how this whole thing started. And that in itself is not a new idea. I think about uh, back in the 1990s, New York City police launched this this program called CompStat, where they were looking at data and looking at crimes and specifically property crimes, because they thought that was sort of an indicator for more violent offenses and as a way to reduce crime. So what sets the PASCO program apart in its use of, of data to try to predict crime. Yeah, that's definitely not a new idea. I think there was a whole season of The Wire that was uh, based on that. But what Pasco started to do was to kind of take it a, a step further. And I, to your point, I mean, I think these are ideas that a lot of different uh, departments are playing with at the time, um, you know, in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks, kind of trying to borrow from the intelligence community to figure out how they can be more strategic and, and targeted with their policing efforts. But what PASCO starts to do then is to do 
kind of a, a predictive policing, if you will, that was based more on individuals than geography. So they created an algorithm that would look at factors such as a person's previous criminal history, who that person associates with, other types of, of police intelligence that are kind of unspecified uh, in the manual. So we don't know a heck of a lot about what's kind of getting swept up into this algorithm. But they were using it to then create a list of people who the agency considered most likely to break the law in the future, and then putting these people's names on a list. And then they would give that list to different deputies. In fact, all of the deputies in, in the agency, you know, we reported would have access to these lists. And it was their job to go and make contact with these people, sometimes over and over and over again. And not necessarily because there was a, a search warrant or probable cause or even evidence of a crime, but rather just because these people were on the list, they were deemed likely to be possible future criminals. Um, deputies were ordered to make repeated contact with them. So you mentioned predicting future crime, and I think you used this line in, in one of your, your stories for the Times is, uh, it was kind of like Minority Report meets Moneyball, where you're trying to use data, you're trying to predict human behavior. Sounds futuristic. It sounds uh, maybe a little bit far-fetched. So what, what are some of the pitfalls that started to emerge as, uh, as the Pasco Sheriff's Office rolled out this, this intelligence-based policing idea? Well, one of the former deputies that we spoke to who was uh, a leader in this program, he said his orders were not just to make continued contacts with these people, but to actually make their lives so miserable that they either felt like they needed to leave the county or they wanted to sue the agency for violating their rights. And, and what we've heard from numerous other people who were targeted was that the deputies would show up at their homes in the middle of the night surround their homes with squad cars, shine flashlights into their windows, wake them up, kind of embarrass them in front of their neighbors. And simply because they were on a list or because somebody in their house was on the list, uh, they would be subject to very aggressive policing. On top of the, the visits, the deputies would routinely give code enforcement citations to people who were on the list. Um, we spoke to one woman who ended up getting a number of tickets for having a chicken coop in her backyard, for having um, a, a cement brick in her front yard after a hurricane. You know, when we heard from other deputies that they would go out and essentially look for reasons to give tickets to people who were on the list. Uh, again, kind of as part of that whole, you know, we're going to just be hyper, hyper aggressive if you make this list. And that was when people who were targeted and, and their family members and neighbors really started to raise questions about the style of policing. And a number of juveniles, people under the age of 18, have been targeted or ensnared in, in this program. And that is because the sheriff's office has been getting data or information about students in the Pasco County school system. How did Pasco schools get involved with this uh, intelligence uh, uh, police program? So here's the thing, as it's been described to us, these are actually two different programs, kind of the, the general intelligence-led uh, policing program with these prolific offenders, that's what their term for people who wind up on the list. 
And, and we were ultimately able to obtain the list of prolific offenders from the sheriff's office. There were about a thousand people on it and at least one in 10 were kids. It was kind of hard for us to tell who was a juvenile when they were targeted because the sheriff's office didn't tell us when people were added to the list. So we just had the, the names of everybody who had ever been on the list and how old they are currently. Um, but we know that at least one in 10 were 18 years old or younger. Also under the umbrella of this intelligence-led policing effort, there was a, another program going on where the sheriff's office was actually mining data from the Pasco County School District. So they were looking at school grades, they were looking at attendance records, they were looking at student discipline, and they were kind of sucking that information up into a different algorithm, and they were marrying it with information coming from the child welfare system uh, that said if children had experienced traumatic events in their lives, uh, if they had parents who had substance abuse issues, if they had been abused or neglected, et cetera. They were using all of that information to create a separate list of school children who they thought were likely to become career criminals down the line. You know, we really weren't able to figure out if there was any crossover uh, between who were on the, the two lists, if you will, because we weren't able to obtain the list of, of school children. Um, but it did raise some really interesting and important questions about why they were collecting that data, whether it was even legal for them to be collecting that data from the school district, and frankly, how they were using it. So this just sounds like a sprawling enterprise for the Pasco County Sheriff's Office to be involved in, because I imagine you've got to have a whole apparatus of people who are gathering this data and analyzing it. And then it, it, it filters down to officers on the beat who are expected to go out and, and check on these people and see if they're, if they're engaging in criminal behavior. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, one of, one of the things that Chris Nako sought to do when he became sheriff was to really make this concept of intelligence-led policing as, as Pasco really developed it, but to make that style of policing kind of the backbone of the entire agency. So he applied for federal grant money to build up kind of the intelligence-led policing department, if you will, to hire analysts to buy the computer equipment to really beef up the networks, um, but then also to do the training so that everybody within the department kind of lived and breathed this philosophy, um, you know, in these practices, told that uh, this kind of the senior People in the agency would get quizzed all the time on whether or not they understood the the philosophy and, you know, if they could repeat the practices and speak to their importance. And, you know, everybody in the agency was being trained on it. So I think you're you're right that, yes, it was really a, a sprawling thing. And it kind of had had tentacles in all different parts of the agency, too. Um, just it was originally built as a kind of a, a program that would combat property crime because that was a, a huge problem. But as the years went on and this became kind of more of an integral part of the agency, the intelligence-led policing apparatus did spread into other pieces of the agency. So we know that there was a behavioral health team that was kind of using some of these intelligence-led policing strategies and tactics in their practices too and that the agency was thinking about taking intelligence-led policing and bringing that kind of into the violent crimes uh, arena as well. Did PASCO deputies have 
targets or quotas that they had to meet in terms of the number of contacts that they had with with uh, with people who were on these lists? We heard from some supervisors who said that they felt intense pressure to make as many contacts as possible. Um, as far as actual quotas, I, I don't know if there was an actual number. We were never able to get at that, but uh, several people said there was a lot of pressure. You're listening to Florida Matters. I'm Bradley George. We're speaking with Tampa Bay Times reporter Kathleen McCrory about the paper's investigation into a predictive policing program in Pasco County. The sheriff's office continues to defend that program. You can read their response to the Times investigation at WUSFnews.org. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment. This is Florida Matters on WUSF 89.7. I'm Bradley George. Today, we're talking about a controversial predictive policing program used by the Pasco County Sheriff's Office. A team of investigative reporters at the Tampa Bay Times recently won a Pulitzer Prize for their work uncovering problems with the program. Let's get back to my conversation with reporter Kathleen McGrory. So in your, your, your first story in the series for the Times, you, you profile some of the people who got ensnared in this program. And I want you to talk about one of them. Tell me about Tammy Heileman's story and how she ended up being a part of this. Yeah, uh, Tammy Hillman, um, she kind of learned about intelligence-led policing because her son was getting in some trouble when he was a teenager. He got arrested on a number of occasions, and deputies were always showing up to their home to, to do these checks on him. So they would show up in the early morning, they would show up in the middle of the night, there would be multiple deputies, and they would just come ostensibly to check on her son. But after some time, you know, she said it started to really feel like harassment. So much so that her her younger children, um, her daughters were starting to become very fearful of the police because they were just always at the house uh, and often for no reason. I had mentioned earlier that we spoke to somebody who had gotten code enforcement citations for having chickens in the backyard that she was using because she liked having fresh eggs. Uh, that was Tammy. She was ticketed for that. She was ticketed for having trash in her yard. Uh, and all of these things just felt very silly to her. You know, she felt like they were clearly because she was being targeted. Ultimately, what happened was deputies came by uh, to talk to her and to ask her some questions about her son. At that point, she kind of had enough and, and she was taking her younger daughter to Girl Scouts and told the deputy, look, I, you know, I, I don't have time to do this today. I don't want to do this today. I want to talk to you when my lawyer is here. I got to go. And she got in her car and she left. Well, the deputy followed her down the street and pulled her over. Um, there's some confusion as to who was wearing a seatbelt in the car. Uh, the deputy says the daughter wasn't wearing a seatbelt. Tammy says her daughter was indeed wearing a seatbelt. But things escalated quite quickly to the point where he was pulling her out of the car and arresting her um, for, for not complying. And she ended up you know, getting arrested a second time after another contact that she had with deputies went awry. Deputies came back to her house um, months later and she was upset that they were back and she flung open a door, the screen door, while the deputies were standing there. It hit the deputy in the chest, the screen door, and she ended up getting arrested a second time for battery on a law enforcement officer. 
she spent 76 days in jail, in jail. She's now a convicted felon. She's had a very difficult time finding jobs. It's totally upended her life, you know, and, and she believes that this is because she and her family were targeted uh, under this program and initially for crimes her, her son had committed while he was a kid. So is there any kind of, of recourse for folks who end up on one of these lists or family members of people who end up on one of these lists and uh, are facing this kind of um, almost harassment from, uh, from PASCO deputies? Not that we know about. Uh, and in fact, we asked some experts to review the program for us. And one of the things that they pointed to as, as problematic was that there was really no recourse. There was no way for somebody to challenge whether or not, you know, um, they they met the bill for being a prolific offender, um, for challenging their inclusion on the list. And there was really no specified path to getting off of the list. In many cases, people didn't even know that the list existed or that, that they themselves or a member of their family were on it. How did Sheriff Nako and other officials in Pasco respond when you you took their your reporting to them and, and said, hey, this is what's going on with this program? Yeah, the sheriff's office, you know, we reached out to the sheriff very early on in our reporting, let them know that we were interested in looking into this program and asked for an interview. They declined. As we were a little bit later in our reporting, we circled back to share with them our findings. And they said that they really stand behind this program. They said that other agencies were using similar techniques. And they pretty much said that what we were were describing as harassment and what families were describing as harassment, you know, it was really nothing more than basic law enforcement functions. They gave us some statistics that showed that there had been a drop in burglaries, larcenies, and auto thefts since the program began and pointed to that as a sign that the program had been successful. Um, but when we zoomed out and tried to look at crime trends in other kind of the surrounding areas um, that weren't using the same types of programs, the, the trends were the same. So that suggests to us that the trends that they were seeing in, in Pasco might not have been specifically because of this program, but just, you know, just general, general crime trends that we're seeing here in Florida. Have there been any changes or conversations about changes to the program uh, since your reporting? Once we published the stories, you know, we saw um, uh, a lot of folks in the community kind of stand up and, and say, wait a minute, you know, we didn't realize that this was happening or we knew that there was some intelligence-led policing program, but we didn't really understand the specifics of it. And that moved a lot of people to take action. So, you know, we saw civil liberties uh, groups really denounce these programs. Um, we saw a coalition of groups form, including the uh, NAACP Legal Defense Fund and the Southern Poverty Law Center. You know, they came together to, to raise some questions and demand changes saw four people who had been targeted file a federal lawsuit against the agency. Um, we saw state lawmakers propose bills to curb some of these policing tactics. But I think where we've kind of seen the most change was in the, the piece of the program that I was describing that had to do with the school district. So uh, a U.S. congressman urged the Federal Department of Education to open an investigation into the data sharing that was happening between the sheriff's office and the school district. Um, the U.S. Department of Education did, in fact, open up that investigation. Um, I, I don't know if it is still ongoing. But once that investigation started, the sheriff's office in the school district announced that they were really going to curtail the data sharing. 
um, such that school resource officers would no longer have access to student grades. Um, and anytime that police analysts went to access confidential student records, um, they would have to make a record of having access that information. What questions about this program have you been unable to answer that you're still trying to dig into? There were a, a couple things that we would have really liked more information on. You know, we were able to understand kind of the outlines of the algorithm from some internal manuals that we obtained through records requests. But some of that information, um, you know, we, we still don't know exactly how the algorithms work um, and exactly what information is going into those algorithms. You know, so uh, it would have been interesting to have an even more clear view of that. Um, and to be honest, we still don't really know what's happened inside the agency, if they have curtailed uh, the use of these intelligence-led policing strategies further, you know, or if they've kind of uh, continued business as usual. How does what you discovered in your reporting about this program in Pasco County kind of maybe fit into some of these larger discussions about the role of police in American society and this idea that you know, police are asked to do so many different things, things that might be better taken care of by social workers or mental health professionals, et cetera. Do, do you see this program maybe as kind of an extension of that discussion of maybe the police kind of taking on too many responsibilities? That's a good question. I mean, I, I, I think when you kind of look at it uh, in kind of the, the historical arc of policing, there are things that are there are different types of strategies and approaches that become kind of fashionable at different times. And as I had said a little bit earlier, I think kind of in response to 9-11, we really did see a lot of police agencies try to take more of a data-driven approach, you know, also because of the new emerging technology and because everybody's taking a data-driven approach to everything. We see it happening in, in, in business too. But also kind of this concept of borrowing ideas from the intelligence community you know, that all became very, very popular uh, after 9-11. It was already starting to become popular in the 90s. It seems to be coming to be becoming less popular now. We've seen a couple of instances where similar programs, and, and these programs kind of operate, they're, they're secretive by nature, you know, so where programs like this have kind of come to light elsewhere in the country and when that's happened, they've gotten a lot of pushback and in some instances been been shut down. And I have to, to think that, you know, in the wake of the, the killing of George Floyd, where there are some big questions right now uh, about kind of what the next chapter of policing is going to look like. I have to wonder if it might be more of a, a return to community policing and, and cops walking the beat you know, rather than trying to use these new technologies to, to make guesses. Thank you for, for making time for us. And again, congrats on the, on the Pulitzer. Thank you so much for having me. Kathleen McGrory is an investigative reporter at the Tampa Bay Times. We've got a link to the paper's investigation on the Pasco policing program and the sheriff's office's response at WUSFnews.org. The Pasco Coalition, or People Against the Surveillance of Children and Over-Policing, is a consortium of about 90 civil rights groups that are challenging the program. I spoke with two people involved. Anthony Ashton is an attorney with the NAACP. Anisha Reddy is Privacy Counsel at the Future of Privacy Forum. So, Anthony, I'll start with you with this 
the so-called intelligent policing program in, in Pasco County, what what have been some of the issues that that you and your colleagues at the NAACP have documented with uh, with this program? Well, I think first of all, one of the big issues is that the way the program is structured, it essentially collects data on children and encourages surveillance of children. We haven't, as far as collecting data, I'd say one of the issues with collecting data is that there have been data requests that have made, uh, that we've made to the sheriff's office. People, we've heard anecdotal uh, issues of people who have reached out to try to find out if their children are on uh, this list of, of potential offenders uh, and not been able to gain information about that. We haven't, to my knowledge, seen anything that shows that the program actually does what it's supposed to do. So I, I'd say one of the issues regarding data is a lack of data, a lack of transparency with regard to how the program is run, what it takes to be put on a list, how someone gets off a list. And even when these children are on the list, trying to figure out, well, what are you going to do for them now? You say that they're at risk, first of all, at risk of what? And secondly, what do you do as the adult in the room to try to help these children as opposed to just following them around to wait till they do something wrong to pounce? Anisha, a lot of law enforcement agencies around the country have intelligence programs like this or similar to what, what's been done in Pasco County. What kind of oversight is there for these, these kind of data-driven policing programs, whether it's from state governments or from uh, the federal government? So first, what I'll say is what's unique about this program is that it incorporates student data, which is uniquely protected unlike the information that may be enforcing, informing the other programs that you mentioned. So I work in student education privacy. One of the things that really struck us is how student data was being inappropriately shared with the, the sheriff's office to inform this database. So students were being inappropriately targeted based on how they interacted in the classroom. Anthony, what have the conversations been like uh, between you and sort of the other groups that have coalesced in opposition to this program? What's the dialogue been like with, with the Pasco Sheriff's Office and with the Pasco uh, school system in terms of, of, of sharing and using the student data? I'd say there are a number of organizations, civil rights organizations, as well as parents, teachers, community organizations, who are all concerned about the way this program is run. And, and by that, uh, I mean, again, knowing exactly what its purpose is, how it's being managed, knowing what happens with student data. Uh, there has been, there have been some conversations with the uh, schools. I know that there, we've sent letters. We They're very much aware of the position that we have that these programs or this program needs to end. There was kind of a um, tactic that uh, they took or the school or the, or the uh, sheriff's office took of saying, well, we've got a new contract. But when we said, okay, well, what's behind the new contract? What are you saying? What happens, you know, saying, well, we've changed things. There's a new contract in place. It's like, okay, so what happens with all the old data? Not hearing, uh, there was no transparency as, as far as that. And why do you still have a contract with them? What, why are you sharing data with the police department? 
Thank you very much, uh, both of you, for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you both. That was NAACP attorney Anthony Ashton and Anisha Reddy of the Future of Privacy Forum. They're part of a coalition opposed to the predictive policing program used by the Pasco County Sheriff's Office. The Tampa Bay Times uncovered problems with that program in an investigation that recently won a Pulitzer Prize for local reporting. We've got a link to the Times reporting and a response from the Sheriff's Office at WUSFnews.org. We reached out to the Pasco County Sheriff's Office. They declined to comment. And that's Florida Matters for this week. Our producer is Denora Prevost. I'm Bradley George. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you again next week.